Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by another orthopedic surgeon. Rick Geyer is one of the uh, lead orthopedic spine surgeons at Texas Back Institute. Rick is, uh, is uh, like a micro-celebrity. He is uh, such a famous spine surgeon for doing all the new technologies, but most particularly total disc replacement. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you very much, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Rick, let's start out by just asking you to introduce yourself to the to the crowd and our listeners a little bit. Tell us about your training, how you got into spine and all that. Okay. Well, it's a long story. I was originally going to be a total hip surgeon, and uh, one of my future partners I met during residency, he said, well, you know, we're going to start a spine group, and, uh, you know, it would really be neat if you would join us. So when I finished my um, residency, I was all set to uh, go do total hip fellowship until we sort of reunited. Uh, I had met him during my internship and he said, well, listen, you know, we, our spine center is ready to start in Dallas. I said, really? He says, but you have to go out and do a spine fellowship. I said, well, I'm ready to go do a total hip fellowship and a trauma fellowship. And to make a long story short, I went out and did the spine fellowship and I joined my partner, Steve Hochschel and Ralph Rashbaum. And we started Texas Back Institute. And um, yeah, it, it's been a hell of a ride since that time. And it's an amazing place. Everybody who knows anything about spine knows about the TBI. Uh, you guys have uh, have grown all over the southwestern U.S. And it's really a destination type of uh, practice, right? People come from all over the world to come see you guys. Well, it, it's an exciting type of practice, Mike. You know, we never wanted to be thought of as just a group of docs that were practicing spine. We wanted to be on the forefront of new technology. We wanted to participate in research. And as a result of that, you know, many of us have, you know, made a pretty strong academic careers for ourselves. And we travel all over the world and, and we see patients from all over the world, too. Well, I wanted to talk today about that. So I understand that you are. Uh, have taken care of so many celebrities and professional athletes over your career that um, I'd like to spend today's 15, 20 minutes talking about what it's like to take care of that type of patient. And what I mean for our audience is that it's it's good enough to just say, look, you take care of a, a, an executive or a postman or a, another doctor. But when you're taking care of a professional athlete, there is so much at stake. And they're their baseline level of performance is so far above the average human that your work has to be perfect. Your indications have to be perfect. So tell us a little bit about what that kind of practice is like, Rick. Well, you know, it, it's a very interesting practice. I mean, certainly, you, you know, you get to meet some, you know, really amazing people. As you say, these are superstars and these are not just your average uh, weekenders, uh, but the stakes are also very high. And, you know, I would say in general, most of them are really, really nice people, but the demands and pressure on a surgeon are really tremendous. And I think that you have to learn how to, you know, control that, meaning that, uh, you know, you, you still have this patient, you're going to do the best job you can. You hope that they get back to doing what they can do. But I have these long discussions. I say, Hey, listen, you know, here's the goals of surgery. And, uh, 
you know, if this is not reasonable for you, then, you know, you need to make another decision. Uh, when you perform the surgery, you absolutely need things to go flawlessly. And as you know, Mike, you know, things happen. And least of all, you don't want them to happen on somebody like this. If things go well, you know, you're sort of your, you're a medical hero. If things don't go well, then um, you sort of, you go by the wayside. So if there's a lot of internal pressure in taking care of these folks. Sure. And, I, and I'm sure that pressure can be increased even further if you are using new technologies, which don't have the weight of years or decades of uh, literature and proven results behind them. I wonder if you could um, talk a bit about, as you touched on your patient population, as they do traveling from around the world to see you, I'm sure that you have also being in the, in the south of the country, in the southwest, a bit of a snowbird effect, as, uh, as you know, the folks do in my home state of Florida, as Dr. Wang does in Miami. I've spoken with fine surgeons in Arizona who have a number of snowbirds. How does that affect your practice pattern? Well, it does affect it a lot. Uh, as you say, you know, people come down to Texas uh, to get away from the bad weather and come from all over. Um, you know, it, it's a very interesting practice in that it's nice to take care of these folks. But at the same time, if they're not local folks, as you well know, you develop a strong personal relationship with them. And a lot of these folks you're meeting either now, for example, with telemedicine, and I meet a lot from, say, uh, you know, the Midwest and uh, Northwest through telemedicine, and then they come in and then we do their surgery. Uh, but it, it's a little bit different of a feel. In other words, you have to accept the fact that, you know, that personal interaction and relationship may not be the same as somebody that you see locally. For me, it's hard because I'm a very touchy-feely kind of doctor. I really like to get to know my patients. I want to, you know, know more about them. You know, obviously the athletes, I know a lot about them, but I want to know more than just about, you know, what they do. In other words, you know, what what are their, what are their hobbies? What do they do when they're not working or, or playing sports? And, um, you know, it's a little bit harder to do when people are sort of zipping in and zipping out. Yeah, so so that's interesting, right? Because you do cover that whole southwestern quadrant, all the baseball teams, all the football teams, all the, the winter training camps, right? They're all close in proximity to you. So, you know, I understand you've built a practice, you deal with um, a lot of the sports agents, right? How is that like? Uh, in other words, when you're dealing with a patient who also has an agent, so the patient's got their family, the patient's got their concerns, and the agent has concerns too, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's sort of a conflict of interest because the agent wants their client or their athlete to to go back and to do what they uh, always do, and they want them to do it just as well. And so you're just not dealing with the with the athlete; you're also dealing with the agent. And uh, you know, these agents, they're look, that's their business is to represent, and get the best deal for their athletes, but also they want to see them keep on performing because remember, they get a certain percentage of what what the athletes earns or whatever their contract is, you know, comes out to be. So it's, you know, you're just not dealing with the regular old patient. You're dealing with a lot of other people, sort of like in pediatrics, they say the parents, you have to deal with the parents and, and sometimes they're worse than dealing with the, with the child who you're taking care of. I wonder in, in those patients in particular, in the athletes and the younger folks, you know, we, we touched on how you're a, a great proponent and a frequent utilizer of uh, novel technologies such as, such as total discs, artificial discs. Do you find yourself using those motion-preserving technologies more frequently in these active populations? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, 
as you, as you know that you know in certain sports are very very stressful for example um and you know there's been a number of pro athletes that have had uh neck surgery in football um but the thing is that if they're going to have um you know a disc replacement and they're a, a football player uh that's probably not the kind of operation you want to do in those folks especially in interior mm-hmm. alignment. So you're going to do a fusion, whereas with a, a golfer, an artificial disc in the neck is great. Uh, there's been, you know, only one uh, really well-known professional golfer that has an artificial disc in his lumbar spine. I've operated on, you know, not necessarily the, the top tier, but I've operated on a few professionals with artificial discs. But these are different situations. And, uh, you know, it's less stressful, but certain Sports obviously are going to be more stressful for the implants, and we don't have enough data. For example, with the artificial disc, for example, in an art in a golfer in the low back, they put a tremendous amount of torque on their facet. So, it it depends on their pathology, depends on their expectations, and and where they're at in their career, in in what makes the best sense for them. You know, obviously, if somebody you know, and and people know have a a lot of stories about athletes that have had, you know, cervical stenosis and things like that. You're not going to put an artificial disc in somebody like that, especially somebody that participates in uh, contact sports. But for example, in soccer, uh, recently I had a a soccer player and, um, you know, I was unsure whether or not to take a chance on an artificial disc or fusion, but after asking several of my buddies from around the world and they've had pretty good experience. So we're willing to go out on a limb for something like that, where it's not, constant every play contact sports now obviously soccer can be you know is pretty rough but at least they're not falling down on every play and and butting heads with another 250 pounder on the other side of the line so you know i think you have to be careful with new technology have to do what's safe for the patient number one and then you know if it's something that is reasonable then you might consider it so yes you know i'd much rather do an artificial disc on 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 my average patient than a fusion. But when it comes to the athlete, I think you have to be very, very prudent in how you select who you're going to do what on and also consider the sport and the, uh, the stresses that they may put on their, on their spine. So I've operated on a, a number of athletes that are professional, nothing close to what you've done, Rick. And I found that by doing that, I was almost like elevating my game for the typical patient, right? So, you know, if, if all you do is take care of old people who don't do much, it's one thing. But if you're doing surgery on people who have to get to a superhuman level of performance, you almost make that your practice, right? You almost deliver that on a regular basis to the average Joe, don't you? Well, you're exactly right, Mike. And and I think that, you know, it's all my philosophy has changed well because every patient that I see, I stress that, hey, look, the surgery is one thing, but the rehab is really, really important. And it, you know, years ago, we didn't really pay much attention to it. But now there's a lot of great therapists out there that are used to training athletes. And, and I train my average patient. I had them try to do the same training as an athlete would. In other words, I want them doing their core exercise. I want them doing aerobic conditioning. I want them to lose weight. I want to get them in much better shape than they've ever been in before. And, um, uh, you know, some patients are are happy to do it and others are not. And just like, you know, for example, I, I have a practice primarily of, of disc replacement and I'll see a patient and, you know, he'll be in pretty good shape. You know, oh, I played, you know, football in high school and, you know, I let myself go and now I've gained, you know, 30 or 40 pounds. I say, look, 
you're a great candidate, but you got to lose, you know, at least 30 pounds. Okay. You need to do your part to try to maximize the results you're going to get from surgery. I wonder as, as you know, we're, we're talking about operating on elite, even professional athletes, this may be a strange question. And if it's, you know, completely irrelevant, then we can just move on. But I wonder what are the physical differences operating on these people whose bodies are often abnormally or, or remarkably large compared to the normal population? Um, you know, are, are there specialized sizing of implants? Do you need extra personnel in the operating room for flipping, et cetera? Does that ever come in with certain subsets of athletes, be they basketball or linemen in, in football who are exceptionally large? Well, I, you know, that, that, that's sort of a uh, two-edged sword here in Texas. We have a lot of people that are very, very big that are not athletes and a lot of people that are <laughs> overweight. So uh, the sizing is not a problem. Uh, getting them positioned, not a problem. I mean, I operated, I did a two-level disc replacement on a patient today, uh, a guy who's six foot two, weighed 300 pounds. And I looked at my fellow and I said, oh boy, I said, this is going to be a bear to get down. But, you know, you're surprised. Sometimes, you know, you can get that exposure very, very easily. And, you know, you just have to have Cracker Jack uh, X-ray technicians. And this guy per, in particular took the largest size uh, implant. And then another patient I had who was not so large, he took the largest size lumbar implant that, that we had. And so you never know. And then you'll, you know, I'll operate on, on women and you think that they're really, really big. Like I had a, a young gal, a golfer that we did a disc, disc replacement on, and she was five foot ten, and I would have thought she would have taken, you know, one of the larger implants, but she took the smallest implant, and we barely got it in. I mean, we got it in, but you know, again, JP, I, I wish you know there's some rule, but there's no rhyme or reason to it. Rick, do you think in the future there's going to be specialized implants for people who say apply more torque? Or have more loading. Like I always thought it was weird that we used the same generally sized implants for a little Japanese lady who's, you know, 90 pounds and then a 400 pound guy, right? Generally, it's about the same stuff, right? And do you think that we're going to get to that sort of boutique personalized type of implant for the person's body type and uh, kinetic needs maybe? Mike, I mean, that, that is a great question. And it, it's not even a question. It's something where we have to go. Because if you look at, for example, the technology and cervical disc replacement, we have eight cervical discs. Each one comes in a different size. Each one has a different height. Each one has slightly different biomechanics. And the thing is, as you said, each person has different, um, you know, requirements or different uh, needs. And for example, the end plates are different from patient to patient. So I look forward to the time in the future where we will have uh, patient-specific implants, not only in the sizing, not only in the end plate shape, but also, as you say, in the needs. For example, uh, say let's hypothetically say, all right, well, you have a golfer that needs a two-level disc replacement. This guy is a, a semi or an amateur or professional, but you're concerned about the present implants allow too much motion and too much banging around of those facets. So if there was an implant that limited the rotation and would lessen the chance of banging around uh, the facet joints, I mean, that's ideal. So, you know, I think that where the implants have gone now, it's like, you know, can we do an artificial disc? And it's like, okay, we're all going to make one. And we figured out, yes, we can do it. And uh, hey, we made it. Now it's like, oh, maybe 
maybe we need to start thinking about exactly what you said, Mike. I mean, that was very, very perceptive, your statement about having specific implants. And, uh, you know, the unfortunate thing is that the lumbar implants, at least in the U.S., have lagged far behind. The cervical implants, I think, will get there faster. Although, if you do the an artificial disc in the lumbar spine on the right patient, those patients do marvelous. And uh, we've been doing them now for over 20 years. And when I first started doing them, for example, if you needed one or JP, I'd say, all right, uh, we think they're going to last 10 years like total hips. We're 20 years out now. And we don't, granted, we don't have a lot that are 20 years out, but you know, we have a lot that are, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, and, you know, more and slightly less at 18 and some at 19. And we're not seeing any signs of wear. Now, some do develop facet changes. Most of them are managed with facet injections or radiofrequency rhizotomy. But wouldn't it be nice, as you said, to get the specific kinematics of each person's spine, know what the rotation, know what the flexion is of the normal levels, and design your implant you know, to be exactly the same? Well, unfortunately, I don't think the, insu- the uh, device companies see the light. In other words, they are so, you know, align with fusion, that they don't want to put the money into motion preservation. And you know, as well as I do, Mike, you know, the the body wasn't made to be fused. Now, granted, with scoliosis surgery and deformity surgery, we know that the best we can do today is do the fusion. But now people have gone crazy with the sagittal alignment and and doing these hyperlordotic gigs and everything. And I really think that we're not going to see fusion surgery go away for deformity. But I think what we'll see is a hybrid surgery. I think that you know, some smart guys, whether it's smart folks like UJP and Mike, are going to come up with some transitional either rods or some type of implant in the in the threat in the lo- not lower thoracic, but we still can't get there. But uh, lower implants into the lumbar spine that will uh, maintain you know the alignment, but still allow there to be some motion. And eventually, maybe we'll get to the point where we will be able to stabilize these spines without doing these massive fusion, because we all know that you have the transition syndromes above and below. But that's a long story short to say that right now, the manufacturers, all the uh, equipment uh, companies don't make enough money from artificial disc in the lumbar spine. I mean, that's a fraction of 1%. Cervical spine, yeah, they're making money because more and more people are doing them today. So it's a shame that we don't have more lumbar discs. You know, this whole conversation is actually opening a, an avenue of thought that, that has previously not occurred to me before. We, we often talk about, and on the show we've talked about, the increasing specialization within all surgical disciplines. We often talk about it within neurosurgery, but even among spine surgeons, you see more and more folks these days who break out into, I'm an MIS guy, I'm a deformity surgeon, I focus on cervical, et cetera, et cetera. And we always have these anatomical focuses. But as we're talking about these specialized populations of patients, I wonder if in the future, as as maybe we develop these specialized technologies or implants based on body type, we might even see surgeons who go into sub-disciplines or sub-focuses in rare cases on specific populations. Those who focus on elderly patients or those who focus on young, active athletic patients, as you do in your practice, sir. So I wonder for for those folks maybe uh, just getting out of training, just starting to establish themselves and brand themselves in practice, are there any tips or advice you could offer on how to break into that population? You know, as as we all know, all politics are local, all businesses by word of mouth. 
once you've treated a few professional athletes, they can always recommend you to a friend. But how, how do you think it, uh, someone just starting out in the field could try to break in and, and start to develop some professional and doctor-patient relationships with these athletic folks? Well, as, as you said, JP, unfortunately, a lot of it is political. I mean, the best way is um, if, if they know the, uh, the docs that are taking care of the vi- uh, various teams, if they could, you know, introduce themselves and say, hey, listen, um, and if they're a general orthopedic surgeon, most teams now actually will have a general orthopedic surgeon and a spine surgeon, at least in, uh, in football. In Dallas, we do. Um, in um, basketball, they, they just have an orthopedic one. But one of my buddies, uh, you know, introduced himself to how He got involved uh, to the orthopedic surgeon taking care of one of the basketball teams and say, hey, listen, you know, you know, don't you guys need a, a spine uh, consultant? And he just volunteered his services for nothing. So that that's an easy way to break in. Unfortunately, there is a lot of politics and it really depends on the city to city. And then the other thing is to, you know, now with uh, the Internet and, you know, social media, uh, for example, I have a young partner that is doing all this endoscopic surgery and he is very, very big into it. And if you want to make that your niche, then, you know, you have to to go after it. Uh, for example, you can volunteer for the local football teams, which is certainly much less political, uh, or the local basketball teams and introduce yourself and you sort of get your foot in the wood, uh, you know, dip your toe in the water and, you know, maybe one thing leads to another. And then you start taking care of some of these high school athletes. And then if there's a local college around, you know, find out who the, the trainers are, find out who the team doc is, introduce yourself. Um, it's tough, but if you want to do it, you can do it. I mean, that that wasn't my case. I sort of, you know, fell into it. And, uh, you know, I did it just because, you know, I travel a lot and, you know, give talks all over. And, um, you know, then by word of mouth, I would get calls for from folks, for example. You know, I, I get calls from and now he's a friend of mine, but there is a orthopedic uh, sports guy in London that takes care of a lot of professional athletes. So we got to be friends after he sent me. Uh, some, an American athlete that had consulted him. And then, you know, then from there, everything, you know, the snowball starts, you know, rolling along. Well, Rick, I, in this podcast, we talk a lot about things like the stress of doing surgery and taking care of complications and all that. And I can only imagine how that stress level is amplified when you're dealing with someone who's no, has notoriety, right? Someone who is going to be read about uh, in the papers the next day, right on the injury list. How do you deal with that? How do you calm yourself or maintain uh, equanimity during this type of situation? Well, you know, it, it's interesting you say that, Mike, because I, you know, first thing, you know, people don't think think about it much, but really, surgeons, we are a source of, you know, a form of athlete. And you know, I have my routine on surgery days. For example, today was my surgery day. You know, I get up, I have my breakfast. I always make sure I get a good night's sleep. I do not party. And if I have a dinner meeting, I make sure that, you know, I get home at a reasonable hour. And, um, you know, I listen I listen to music on the way to work. I never listen to any, any of the political BS. I don't listen to any of the news stations. I just want to listen to music and I listen to it loud. And that sort of gives me a mindset. And I, and I walk in the OR and I am just focused. All I'm focused on is... Uh, you know, my fellow and I, we go over the x-rays and say what we're going to do. And once you drape the patient, all I see is about, 
you know, whatever, depending on the decision, you know, a coupling square of that skin. And that's the only thing that I see. Otherwise, I am laser being concentrated. Um, you know, I thought about the surgery the night before, what we're going to be doing. And, you know, like I tell our fellows, you always want to think about, you know, your pitfalls or where you might go wrong. But then I think about, you know, the steps and how I'm just going to go. And, um, and I just stay focused. One thing that I learned during my fellowship, though, uh, from Wilson, if you do get into a problem, what he would do, he would say, uh, uh, if we had a complication, he'd say, Rick, uh, let's go and look at the x-rays. I'm thinking to myself, why do we look at the x-rays? We've already looked at the x-rays 10 times. But what I realized from him was that that was a way of, of breaking his concentration. In other words, just to sort of let things reboot, so to speak in our, in our mind. And then we go back and you sort of have a fresh look at what you're doing. Okay. This is what's going on. This is what we need to do. This is how we're going to go about and do it. So, uh, I think it just, you know, you have to maintain a focus. You can't get distracted. Um, a lot of folks like music in the OR. I am just the opposite. I just like to communicate with my scrub nurse, which fortunately we don't communicate. I just stick my hand back and she knows exactly what I'm looking for. And if it's not the right instrument, which is very rare, I'll just say, Tawana, I need this. And, um, and everybody just knows their role. And, um, you know, we, we just do it very, very businesslike and very efficient. And, and it's really no different than I think what a professional athlete does. And in particular, like, you know, a golfer, you know, they step up to the tee and, uh, they know what club they're going to have. They're, they're, you know, sensing the, you know, which way the wind is blowing and, you know, and all the other things. And, and I think in my, and I think of it in a way we're all athletes, but we are, we're surgeon athletes, so to speak. And I think that, you know, those folks that concentrate and have good mental clarity are the ones that, that do well. And, you know, as they say that, you know, we're, we're all well-trained, but there's a little bit, there, there's something extra that makes a difference between a good surgeon and a great surgeon. Wow. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. I, I've got to say that you know, we, we always talk about, uh, like we discussed before, these these increasing specializations within the field. I've never considered serving a specialized population of patients and how your practice patterns, your uh, surgical approaches, even the technologies that you offer have to be catered to the, the population of patients you're treating, not just the anatomy or the pathology. So I'm sure that's a very fascinating perspective, not just for me, but for all of our listeners. So Thank you, sir, for joining us and sharing your experience and perspective tonight on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Oh, you're very welcome, JP, and very welcome, Mike. This was fun. I enjoyed it.